Talpain o theta un hupa tain kratean, ke ra tu theu hena humas upsose in Cairo, pasan tain meramnan humon epiripsantes ep autan, hati auto male peri humon. Nepsata gregarisata ha antidikas humon diabolas os. Leon, Orua Menas, Peripate, Zeton, Tine Katapein. This is, uh, yes, this is, uh, I was here, I thought. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have absolutely uh, had the delightful joy over the last uh, probably year, yeah. right? Uh, every Sunday we um, announce that we have a Greek class that meets in our home on uh, Saturday mornings for anybody who would like to come and, and study New Testament Greek. And uh, we've, had, we've had some come and go, and that's the way it always is. Um, I had one young man that went through the entire uh, study probably eight, ten years ago. And uh, and equals the second one, who has gone through uh, the entire uh, course of uh, basic Greek grammar. <clears throat> He's gone through the whole thing. And uh, we just finished that up two weeks ago. And uh, she's, I have her read that because she's beyond me in her ability to read it. Uh, she's doing uh, extremely well reading and translating the Greek New Testament. It's fantastic. So, in recognition of your accomplishment, uh, our church wants to uh, gift you with uh, your very own Greek New Testament. Yeah, so so there you are. There's your there's your Greek New Testament. Very exciting. Uh, and also uh, keeping up your biblical Greek in two minutes a day, and uh, you'll see that there's uh, entries. Very uh, very simple. You've got a verse. You can read it, translate it. And it will help you with the parsings and the vocab and all kinds of things. Two minutes. You place this in strategic places, and you can do this uh, every day. I, I do it, and uh, it's fantastic. It's a good way to keep up your grief. So, congratulations. Very well done. I think she deserves a hand. Oh, and she needs a class now. So for, for anyone else who wants to, who wants to dive in, she's excellent. Uh, top of the class. <laughs> she, she graduates top of the class, and, uh, and she's excellent and can help you uh, with, the, with the study. So if that's something you feel like you want to sink your teeth into at any time, April needs a class. So you can. Congratulations. All right, we'll take your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is where April was reading from. And uh, today I think we finish our, our study of 1 Peter. So, notice in uh, verse 5, 
Obviously, April did not read this whole text, just a portion of it, so we'll read the whole thing. Notice chapter 5, verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you who are in Christ. Well, Father, what a great uh, study this has been, and we thank you, Lord, for the epistle of 1 Peter. And uh, now as we uh, look at this last portion that you would teach us by your spirit, Father, with your truth, we ask you by your spirit, your truth would go forth, forth, penetrate our hearts, Lord, we believe that this is your word, that when we read your word, we hear your voice. And Lord, there are things that you want to teach us today. You want to convict our hearts. You want to encourage us. And so we commit this time to you to that end. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's much that we could say. We could probably do this in two or three different sermons. We're going to see how we do today. Uh, I'll be doing a little editing as I go, I think. So um, you can pray for me in that way. I was thinking about this week, the pioneering missionary, William Carey. Uh, William Carey wrote a letter to his son uh, on the occasion of Carey's 70th birthday. And this is what he said. I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My neglect of the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause or sought his glory or honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared till now, and I'm still retained in his work. I trust for acceptance with him to the blood of Christ alone. It's an astonishing statement, really, uh, in light of the fact that William Carey went to India in 1793 and worked tirelessly with just barely enough resources to survive 
to live and to do what he was doing. He's in India, of course. He is translating the Bible into 40 languages or dialects. It's hard for us to imagine when you think of a man like this who who is working so tirelessly. It's hard for us to think of somebody like that who could possibly find fault with themselves, right? That's the astonishing thing. He's finding fault with himself. He's calling, calling that fault sinfulness and sloth. Sloth. Um... Evangelizing, translating, working, suffering, constant. God forgive me for my sloth. Maybe he suffered from poor self-esteem. Maybe he had those kind of, maybe he was sort of morbidly introspective. It seems strange to us, doesn't it? Because we do, we, we share the gospel with someone, right? We spend a few minutes in prayer. We read the Bible. We uh, go to a Bible study. Maybe we attend church and we feel very good about ourselves. We are really getting after it. Hmm. Well, I, I think that we are people that are more prone to pride, right? We take pride in the kinds of things that we do. And we're oftentimes motivated by selfish ambitions um, in ministry. We could be motivated by fame or money or power. We dealt with some of those things last week, just looking at the first three verses of this chapter. The reality is that some of the same things the world wants, that these are what we want as well. We want success. We want uh, many times what the world offers. And so we battle. It's a constant, perpetual battle against pride and against a powerful enemy. And both of those things are focused on in this passage. Peter really is, I think, giving us, for for our practical purposes, I I want to suggest to you that Peter is giving us uh, some principles for spiritual victory. That's kind of how we'll couch this material. These These are principles for spiritual Victory or spirit, a, a spiritual formula for success, if you want to put it that way, or as another option. And, and there are just two in this portion of Scripture. Uh, one, you have to have the right attitude, you have to have a proper attitude. Uh, and that attitude is going to be given to us in verses 5 through 7. Uh, we, will, uh, we will put the title on these verses, that attitude is humility. Humility. And then we need a proper understanding of the enemy, which comes to us in verses 8 through 11. All right, so humility first. You want to be, you want to be successful. You want to have victory in your life. Then got to be humble. Humility is a foundation For that, notice in verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, 
For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, Peter is giving this extremely clear instruction right in the wake of the exhortations that he gave to the elders back in verses 1 through 4 that we looked at last week. He challenges the elders to do their work and the way that he challenges them to do it. You read it. Right there it is. Um, I thought it was an important sermon last week, uh, not just because I preached it or I thought it was especially good as a preached sermon, but the passage is so important that if you, if, you didn't li- if you weren't here and didn't listen to last week, I'd really encourage you to go back and do that. But after he gives these clear instructions to the overseers, then he challenges the young men to bring themselves in submission under their leadership. Be open to their counsel. Listen to their reproofs. Watch their lives. Follow the example that they set. And we looked at all that last week. So... From that point, we move forward. And then notice, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. So that which he commands the young men to do, now he's going to to put that on all the believers and in reference to our relationships with one another. Clothe yourself in humility. It's a very rare word in the Greek text, um, it's a metaphor that, that, that is taken from this idea of putting on a garment. All right. So <clears throat> the picture is a servant who is clothing themselves about with an apron for the purpose of serving those in the house. It, it, as that word is used in that sort of context, I wonder as Peter is writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit, if he isn't thinking about something, if there's not a thought in his mind, a memory that he had of being in that house, in the upper room, with Jesus wrapping himself about with the towel, going around and washing the dirty, nasty feet of all of those disciples and that incredible interaction with Peter in that passage. Um, Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter on that occasion? If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. On another occasion, the ruler of the Gentiles lorded over them. The great men exercise authority over them. It's not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be, what? Servant of all. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. Do nothing from emptiness or selfish conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We could go on like this. You, you get Peter's point and his emphasis. Must clothe ourselves with, in humility toward one another. If you want motivation for doing that, 
comes in the next line. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's sufficiently motivating. If your person is prone to pride and wanting people to serve you, wanting people to bow to you, to your ideas, to your intentions, your, your agendas. You care about yourself more than you care about others, and you think others exist for the express purpose of serving you. You might take note here. God is opposed to the proud. That word opposed is a very strong word. It, it, it means to resist. God is resisting. God sets himself in battle array against the proud. He scoffs at them. He, he will ultimately condemn them. There's a wonderful contrast. The next word, but. Gotta love the buts of Scripture. The howevers and the therefores and the buts. Hopefully you, you pay attention when you're reading to those things. But God gives grace to the humble. Now, wonderful? Saving grace, sustaining grace. The, the prophet says, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and what? You know it, right? You know the passage, right? Go ahead, anybody? And to walk, thank you. Oh, man. It's like, oh. No, I appreciate it. I'm preaching, you're listening, so you're hesitant. But um, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I love Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. You can give that a look sometime. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where's a place that you you could build for me? Where's a place that I may rest? For my hands have made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who was humble, and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isn't that powerful? Humble, contrite in spirit, trembling at the word of God. That's the one that God looks to. You're proud? Just the opposite. He resists you. He is opposed to you. Verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, how do you do that, right? That may, how, how is that? I mean, what does that look like? I think at least it has to involve a knowledge, a knowledge that every circumstance in your life that you're dealing with, every loss, every sorrow, every trial, every disappointment, every tear, every storm, every pain, everything in your life is coming to you through the hand of a sovereign God who actually loves you and cares about you. We have to rest in that truth. It doesn't look like it. I thought God loved me. What are all of these troubles? But we rest in the truth 
that God loves us and he works in us and and with us through the difficulties and through the trials, ultimately for his glory and for our good. His goal is not your physical comfort, satisfaction, security. His goal is to conform you to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. And he uses the trials and difficulties as hard as they are to do that. And so we rest there. And we rest there knowing, and here's the hope, that at the proper time, God may exalt you. Right? So suffering for a moment, suffering for a while, trials are there. We rest in the reality that at the proper time, he will exalt us in due time. In due time, God will bring our suffering to an end. It will end. The tears, the pain, the loss, the sorrow, it's going to be finished and God will ultimately exalt you. You say, when's that going to happen? Well, it might happen when you die. It might be nothing but loss, pain, sorrow, suffering, trouble from this day until the day you die. Doesn't matter. Ultimately, this is going to be true. That's going to end and God will exalt you. It's going to end. You might be tempted to think God doesn't care about you. How would a loving God allow me to go through such trials? Well, you're here on this earth and you're battling, battling constantly. Endless battle of, uh, for your soul against a powerful enemy. And you may be tempted to worry. You may, you may be tempted to be anxious as you are dealing with the battle. Peter has a word for you right now, right here. Hopefully you've seen it. Verse 7, amazing. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 7, what a promise. What an exhortation. We are so bad at this. We, we have little, we have big sins that we confess. I don't know, what do you confess when we have times of confession? Probably digging around for some big sins. I dig around for big sins. You dig around for little sins. There's no such a thing, big sins, little sins. Well, here's a sin that we all are guilty of and we seldom confess it to God as sin and it might be as big as it gets. Worry. Anxiety. When you worry, you're saying, God, I don't trust you. I gotta, I gotta worry about this. God invites us. It's amazing, isn't it? Just look. I mean, God invites us to throw ourselves completely on His grace and care. Let's say it strongly. Worry is sin. If you're prone to worry, you should just confess that to God. God, forgive me. Teach me to trust you. Remember Philippians chapter 4? Great passage. Be anxious for nothing. There it is. What, 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 what can I be anxious for? What can I worry about? There certainly must be something that justifies my worry, anxiety. No. Be anxious for nothing, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And so victory, this spiritual warfare that we're dealing with, the victory is in having a proper attitude. It's an attitude of humility. Attitude of humility. But there also is a second attitude, and that is uh, understanding. Understanding um, the enemy that we battle against. Hopefully you caught the songs that we're singing. Those are intentional. Whether it's before the throne of God above, um, a mighty fortress is our God. Are you listening to the song when you're singing it? Are you thinking about the words of the song? Wonderful, powerful songs today that connect us right here uh, to our passage. Verse 8, notice. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This is, this is quite a statement. When you consider the fact that Peter is writing this, um, who is an authority? Who is the enemy? I mean, from an earthly standpoint, right, it's Nero. There's Nero. Nero's doing his thing. Rome's doing its thing. The world battling against, persecuting, shedding the blood of believers. That's a fiery trial that they were dealing with. Peter says, you want to know who your enemy is? You want to know who your real enemy is? It's the devil. And so Peter exhorts us again to be sober. He's been doing this throughout his epistle. Be sober. Be alert. You might think of chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 7. So God calls us to be morally, spiritually alert against the assaults of sin and Satan. We have a powerful adversary. Powerful adversary. One who is seeking our harm. I thought about doing a whole series on Satan. Been thinking a lot about Satan this week because of this passage, listening to sermons being preached about Satan. I got a lot of material I could just go on about Satan for a while, but we'll be here too long. So um, this passage is amazing. Peter is, he's intending for us to take the devil seriously. The difficulty is, of course, Jesus conquered the devil. Jesus won the victory on the cross, crushing the head of the devil. We get that. Uh, and yet God in his providence gives the devil a certain degree of freedom to continue to wreak the havoc that he desires to wreak under the authority of God's sovereign plan and for the good of his people and the glory of God. And that must be a tremendously frustrating thing for Satan. But there it is. Peter is calling him a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That sounds serious to me. Doesn't it sound serious to you? That's scary. Think of what a lion does when they devour their prey. You watch that, and it's fearful. Um, 
Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, that I'm, that I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craft and subtlety, that you would be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's how Satan works. Craft and subtlety. To the end that we would be led away from Christ. So the devil, here's what he wants. He wants the followers of Christ to abandon the Lord Jesus and to go back to the world, to go back to their old life where there was comfort and security. That's what Satan wants. He comes by stealth and he works in secret. He doesn't call call attention to his approach. You can think of a lion now stalking. He doesn't call attention. He's secret. He's quiet. And he attacks and he attacks like a lion. He is fierce, determined, vicious beast, hungry, content, um, not content, and is intent on capturing you. You are prey. To him, And so we need to remember um, that we have this powerful adversary. It's one thing to hear a lion roar when you're in the zoo, right? Because you've got bars and big windows and everything protects you. And you can stand there in amazement and say, wow. Like that. But if you're out in the safari, right? If you're out in the safari and you don't have any of those protections and you've got camp and you're building a little fire and you're out there by yourself and you hear one of those things roar, right? That's the picture that Peter wants us to have. And as we were reminded with the songs that we sang this morning, that although we do have this powerful adversary, we have a more powerful great shepherd. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I always like Dave, David, you, you know this, that David is one of my favorite sort of types of Christ in the, in the Bible. When you think about David, there he is um, boldly confronting Goliath, right? Runs boldly to the battle. And he knows that God will give him the victory. You know how he knows that? <clears throat> because there were times in the past when he's tending the sheep that bears and lions attacked the sheep and David went out and killed bears and lions. And if God, by his grace, is going to give me victory over bears and lions, he's certainly going to give me victory over this Philistine. And that's what our Savior does for us, and that's the victory that he gives us through faith in him. We are in a great war. But it's not the kind of war where the outcome is uncertain, right? Where we're, we're kind of hoping that things... You ever read those uh, Frank Peretti novels? The Piercing the Darkness is Present Darkness, right? Entertaining novels, but the, it's like the outcome is always in doubt, right? Because as long as the Christians are praying, things are going to go well, and they stop praying, things are going to go badly, and it's going to be, ooh, how, how's this thing going to turn out? We hope that God wins the victory, but Satan is power. And so the outcome is always sort of uncertain. That's not good biblical theology outcome is certain lion is real enemies real victory is already certain
but we still engage in this battle against this powerful foe. How should we, we, we react to this lion? Verse 9, notice, but we resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Well, there it is. How do we deal with Satan? Here, here you don't need a, you don't need a, a 12 a week or 12 step course in winning spiritual victory over the devil. We got a spiritual warfare seminar. We're going to teach you how to have victory over the devil in 12 short uh, steps. Scripture gives it to us much simpler than that. What do I do as the devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? Well, you resist him. Resist him. That's the solution, yes. Resist him. Well, pray tell, let me ask, how do you resist a lion? Well, you resist him by standing firm in your faith. So that's it. Must be something more than that. I don't have to pray prayers. I bind you, Satan, in the name of demons of materialism. And I bind you, demon of anger, demon. How do we not resist him? How? Firm in our faith. Remember what James says? Draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. There it is. There's your spiritual warfare seminar. You draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. The devil cannot do any real harm at all to those who stay near and connected to the faithful shepherd. He might be able to harm us in some way, certainly in this age that we live in, but he'll never harm us ultimately will never harm us ultimately. Uh, we may suffer in this age because of satanic involvement or attack, but God will preserve us. The suffering will end when we're with him. Really, it's kind of amazing when you stop and think about it. Uh, you're really choosing which age you want to suffer in. Right? You're going to suffer. Can't, can't avoid that. You have to choose which age you want to suffer in. You choose Christ and you choose suffering in this age, or will you reject him and choose suffering in the age to come? I like my security and comfort here. Thank you very much in this short time that I have. I don't want to have any kind of uh, problem with what I enjoy in my life and what the world has to offer me. Great. You don't want Jesus? No, I don't want Jesus then you'll suffer. Or you want Jesus now and suffer in this life, and then there will be joy and everlasting comfort in his presence forever. And so we need to be resolved to hold fast. To hold fast the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to be willing to endure what the world and the devil throws at us. And again, as we do that, we're going to suffer. We're going to share. And when we do that, when we suffer, here's an encouraging thing. You, might, you know how like misery loves company? It almost shows up here. 
um, but in a sanctified kind of way. Because God intends us to have comfort in our suffering, fully aware that we have brothers and sisters who are also suffering and who are also battling. Be encouraged. When we resist like God's people have always resisted, then we're going to suffer like God's people have always suffered. But suffering's not the end of the story. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. For a little while. I don't know if you mark in your Bible, uh, but that would be an interesting. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? A, a little while. Um, it doesn't feel like a little while, right? It doesn't feel, when you're in it, it doesn't feel like a little while. The point here, of course, is not that your suffering is not going to be for a long time. As we measure time by our standards, right? But when we compare the temporal suffering to eternity, then of course it is just a little while. Just a little while. Just a glimpse. If you, if you suffered, if you lived a hundred years, and there wasn't a day gone by that you didn't suffer tremendously for those hundred years. It would still be a glip on the radar as it relates to eternity. Suffering is finished. We're with the Lord. His grace awaits us, draws his people toward the complete fulfillment of his promises, toward that eternal glory that will be ours in Christ forever. And Peter's reminding us of who we are and where we're going and that we have been called by him as God's chosen elect and we have been called to eternal glory. So don't give up, right? All that to say, don't give up. Don't give up in the face of suffering. Don't give up in the furnace. Keep your eyes on the glory that is coming by faith. If you were in our study Friday night, we had a wonderful time talking about that, the faith. It's assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's a certainty. And that's what we have our eyes on. And in the meantime... In the meantime, between now and then, Peter tells us that the God of all grace will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Now, I could preach a sermon on every one of those words. I don't think that's the point. I think there's sort of a rhetorical redundancy here. It's a kind of a rhetorical crescendo. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's making a point. Our God will strengthen his people so that we can endure. We can endure and we can make it all the way to glory. So God has the whole plan 
past, present, future, and his control. It's going right where he wants it to go. Your responsibility is to believe him, to trust him, to live by faith. And so we press on. We press on, knowing that God is going to cause us to persevere. Considering the greatness of this God, who is the God that Peter is interacting with in this text, this great God that leads him to worship in verse 11. Do you notice this? To him be kratos. To him be dominion. Literally, into the ages. Amen. I mean, it's just, we translate this in the Greek forever and ever. Well, that's the idea. Into the ages. To him be dominion. It's amazing. It's amazing, right? In, in, again, in light of the fact that Peter is living in a time where um, one of history's most powerful empires was in place. He's living in the days of Rome. Rome's dominion, well, that extended through most of the known world, far and wide. Rome's dominion ruled. Peter is telling us dominion does not belong to Rome. Dominion belongs to God. It is God who's in charge. He is the sovereign over his universe. And he is worthy of ultimate praise and glory. So suffering, just a little while. And eternal comfort and satisfaction at his right hand forever. It's really, I think, encouraging for us when the powers of our time, they seem undefeatable. Powers of our time, um, insurmountable. And we praise God that even when those powers are mounted against us and against him, that all power belongs to him. All authority and dominion are his exclusively, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Christ has all authority. He is the Pantocrator. Then notice these closing comments. We'll hurry through verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Silvanus, probably Silas, this is the one who delivers the letter. And through this brother, he says again, stand firm in the grace of of God. Yes, we're saved by grace. We stand in grace. We stand firm in the grace of God. And then he says um, that he's writing from Babylon, which has caused commentators uh, no little confusion in terms of what Babylon. It might be cryptic. Most think it's cryptic for Rome, that Peter wouldn't have used Rome because of the persecution, and he was using some cryptic uh, word for, for Rome. That might be true. 
It could be that Babylon itself is cryptic for exile. Right? Babylon was the word, the place that would have been most associated with exile. And so when he's identifying Babylon, he's sending greetings from other chosen, elect saints who are also in exile, just like they are. They're aliens and strangers. And one day they're going to be at home in a new heaven and new earth. And then he ends, kiss one another with a kiss of love. I almost preached a whole sermon on this one. I love this ending, right? Um, When you look at verse 14, (laughs) is, is, is Peter demanding? It's a, it is a command. It's an imperative. Is he commanding that we be kissing everyone when we come to church? Right? It's kind of a strange thought. I, nobody kissed me today when I came to church. Not even my wife. She brings me a water. I thought I was going to get a kiss. She walks by. Nobody kissed me. I didn't see anybody kissing anybody else when you came to church. Um, you get the idea, hopefully. There's some aspect in which as believers get together, brothers and sisters in Christ, we love one another. And there's some aspect of showing uh, affection and showing love for one another. We're the family of God. And that does mean that we show affection to whatever that looks like, whatever that looks like for you. And it may not look the same for everyone. Maybe, maybe you like to hug. Hug one another with a hug of love or something like that. I don't, I don't know. I'm not a big hugger. But, um, but uh, you know, if you, if you, if you uh, hug Brock, he probably, you know, go kiss Brock, give him a hug and uh, show affection. He probably will be all right with that. Look, we do need to be wise, don't we? We need to be, we need to be discerning. We need to be careful. Um, particularly in our culture, right? Cultures change. And in this culture, it's different than that culture. And, uh, and, and frankly, men, uh, you would probably get confronted if you were going around giving all the women a hug and a kiss. You know, probably not the best thing to do. We don't want all, you know, our men going around kissing all the women. We, so understand that wisdom is needed. However it is, And I guess I'll just, it's safe just to leave it sort of undefined. But however it is that you show family unity, that you show family affection, that you show family love, however it is that you show affection to one another so that others can see or the world can see that as Christians we love one another, this is what Peter is getting after. We want to honor God in all of his commands. This is a command, and it's here to remind us that we love one another with with unity. And then he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, Peter says, may God give you peace in the midst of your sufferings. And we know that that's possible only through Christ. We have peace only through Christ, and that peace surpasses all circumstances. And that's, uh, that's the end of 1 Peter. I hope you've enjoyed our journey through this epistle. I have 
very much enjoyed uh, preaching this series in First Peter, and I commend it to you. I hope that you will be a student of First Peter. Read through it. It's a short book, five chapters. You can read it once a day. Read it once a day for a month, and at the end of it, you'll be able to think your way right through it, and you'll love. You'll love this, you'll love this epistle. We're so thankful to God that he has given us uh, this letter in his word. Father, we love you today. We're so grateful. Uh, we thank you that your peace is, in fact, our ever-present companion. And we look forward, Lord, to that everlasting peace that we will have with you in Christ when you bring our salvation to a full fulfillment, when you return and establish a new heaven and a new earth. Father, we live our lives by faith, standing in your grace, believing your promises. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.